Welcome to Essential Ethics and our next podcast in the series, Deciding with Children. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. Today we want to explore decision-making with adolescents. To help navigate this maze, I'm joined by Dr Mick Creedy from the Royal Children's Hospital Department of Adolescent Medicine and Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre and Professor in Department of Paediatrics, University of Melbourne. Mick, welcome to Essential Ethics. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Lynn, welcome back to Essential Ethics. Thank you, John. This is a fascinating time in a young person's life. As they navigate their way from the supervised and organised life of a child towards independence as an adult. It's not a straight path or an easy one. And when illness intervenes, it can be complicated by healthcare decisions that need to be made. How much to involve young people in decision making is the question for the podcast today. Are adolescents just big children without significant moral status as decision makers? Or are they young adults in control of their destiny? How do we preserve privacy of the adolescent? Where should the parents be in the decision-making matrix? And what is the role of the doctor? Mick, I want to start the podcast by laying some groundwork and understanding a little about the sort of neurobiology and framework of decision-making in adolescence. And in a sense, why we don't just let adolescents do what they want. Yeah, great question. So look, I think the the latest neuroscience and um, neuroimaging will show that the human brain is not fully developed until about the age of 25 years of age. And it won't surprise those of you who've got young adult children that the last bit of the brain to develop is that prefrontal cortex, and that's responsible for... um, impulse control and seeing the consequences of your actions. So it's not a very strict age criteria where they do get um, fully able to make decisions themselves. It's this continuum and this transition between childhood and adulthood, as you you say. And so the concept of adolescence is this transitional, transitional phase between a child and an adolescent. So this is one of the tensions we often have in adolescent medicine. When do you give a young person control of their decision-making? And the best analogy I can have is it's a gradual process of empowering the adolescent to be informed enough to make those decisions responsibly. And as an analogy, I would say just because someone's 18, you don't hand them the keys to the car to drive safely just because they're 18. It's not a strictly age-based phenomenon that as soon as you get to a certain age, you can be responsible. And we expect young people to be responsible for a lot of things when they turn 18. They're responsible to vote. They, They can drive the car legally. They should be responsible for respectful relationships, be, um, consensual relationships. And one of the things we try to empower young people is young people is that they're also responsible for their own medical care. Now that doesn't happen just because you're 18. 
So if we look at the example of driving again, most people have sat in the back seat of the car since early childhood, seeing their parents hopefully model good driving behaviour. So if for some of a longitudinal illness, hopefully they've been seeing their parents model good health care towards them as children. And gradually as you get older, you might have to do your pre-reading for your L plates, you have to do a test to do your L plates, you're supervised for 120 hours to do your L plates. Hopefully you get your licence when you're 18. Then there's restrictions once you get your licence, like the red P plates and the green P plates. So there is this transition of being fully independent through that process. So it's not just, I think we should see this as a transitional process where the parents do need to be involved, the healthcare health carers need to be involved. There's checks and balances that if a young person does make a stake or doesn't adhere properly, that they're supported to rectify that and then supported to make the correct decisions again and improve on their, on their health care. Mick, you're drawing some interesting parallels between you know, health care decision making and life and citizenship of the young person. You've mentioned the, the age of 18. And I guess when we're thinking like this, you know, the word autonomy or respect for autonomy, which is one of the key bioethical principles, springs to mind. And the reason we're here in essential ethics deciding with children is thinking about this capacity to make good decisions. When do we do it? But, you know, the Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant would say, well, young people are not autonomous. They don't have stable decision making. They don't have the capacity to reflect through things. So they're not all autonomous. So Lynn, you know, you're our supreme ethicist at Essential Ethics. How do you sort of marry marry this up, this Kantian view that, well, you, you don't have full autonomy, you're not a full citizen, as Mick said, you don't vote, you don't own a gun, you don't buy cigarettes, um, to, well, wait on, how do we learn? Okay. Now, first of all, I just want to park the owning a gun bit because I'm not sure that that's a sign of adulthood if we come back to the <laughs> idea of autonomy. So Kant's uh, sense of autonomy is a very, uh, you might think of it as, as a strict sense of autonomy or a notion of autonomy that requires a lot of an individual. So you need to be self-aware and reflective. You have to have developed your own values. They've got to be really your own. And then you've got to be able to think your decisions through in a particular way. So that account of autonomy, actually probably lots of adults don't meet most of the time. And probably if we look around the table where we are now, a lot of the decisions that we've made this morning wouldn't meet that requirement. So it's a really high bar for autonomy. Even if you have a somewhat less strict view of autonomy, uh, it it does require stable values, uh, capacity to think ahead and choose rationally between different alternatives. And what Mick said is that that capacity develops slowly over time. So that's important for two reasons. One is we can't pick an age at which young people have got there, but even if they haven't got there, they're developing those capacities and they still have lots of those capacities. Um, so I think in the, in the, in relation to uh, adolescent decision-making really brings to the fore the idea that we need to think about autonomy not being the only thing that we're in, you know, fully developed autonomy is not the only thing we're interested in. We want to try and respect this young person as a young person, as a member of the community, as a person who has an inner life uh, things are going on in their head, their own, have their own sense of their, themselves, even if they haven't reached that full mature decision-making capacity. So how do we respect the young person as a person 
in that sense and not just worry about have they reached this cutoff point. So I think, Lynn, that gives us a very strong way to, to, to move forward and to be thinking because we're still taking that bioethical principle, but instead of calling it respect for autonomy and setting that bar impossibly high, we're thinking of respect for persons. And I think we've seen in, in paediatrics and some of our earlier discussions how well that holds up in when we're thinking about healthcare for children and then deciding for children, or, well, I just said it, deciding with children is, is what we're, we're thinking about. And Mick, you talked then in your initial discussion then about decision-making and in involving the child. So perhaps when you got a young person, let's imagine a 14-year-old patient comes to you and they've got their parents there, what happens just sort of generally with the consultation and what are your thoughts about how you might be involving them in their healthcare? Now, just pick up a little bit on what Lynn says. I think some people never fully develop all the cognitive or the higher parts of their brain. Uh, and I, impulse control is a good one. I mean, I, I often go to the supermarket and the chocolate bars are next to the cash register. I don't plan to buy them. I know they're bad for me, but impulsively they're in my um, trolley and I, I go home with them not having planned that. So I think we'd have to recognise that um, it, we may never get to full <laughs> perfect autonomy in healthcare. And I think it's a bit... We have to be careful not to set the bar too high because I know we, we often don't reach that. Um, so how do I um, set up an, um, an appointment with a young person? Yeah, I, I, I really – so I'm a consultant paediatrician. So the young person is referred to me. So I make it really clear from the start. Um, I go out and greet them in the room and say, where's – Johnny. And hi, Johnny, who did you bring with you today? So my first engagement is with the young person to make it clear, not just to Johnny that it's his appointment, but to the parents that it's Johnny's appointment, because they're so used to speaking on behalf of their child. So that immediately sets the framework, sets the frame that, um, that this is Johnny's appointment. So into the room and the seating is next important. Parents often sit next to the desk or the seat closest to the desk. I said, um, Johnny's my patient, not you. So we, um, we shuffle the seats around and the parents are in the background. And then I set the scene with, oh, I'm lucky. I've got an hour for initial appointments, half hour for subsequent appointments. I said, okay, um, this is the appointment today. This is what you're referred for. I'll get information from all of you together and then I'll kick mum and dad out and then speak to Johnny by himself. And then we may have to do a swap and get the parents in and, speak to parents by themselves because it's always good to get different perspectives, but I'll get you all back at the end and we'll come to some conclusion and consensus on where to go to next. So that's how I frame it. I very, very, very rarely have parents. I can't remember the last time I had parents refuse to actually leave because it's so scripted from the start. Maybe I'm a little bit older and have that authority, but you do have to approach this in a position of being in authority and in control and that it's normal that this is a standard part of giving your kid the best health care. Mick, that sounds uh, like a great way to do it and I think establishing those ground rules at the beginning. Lynn, from an ethics point of view, how do you, how do you see this? I'm, I'm seeing screaming out, we've talked about respect. Now I'm seeing privacy start to become a really important thing in what Mick's described. Yeah. So as I was listening to Mick describe that, the first thing that struck me was the very deliberate 
carving out of space for the voice of the young person, very deliberate. It's done subtly, um, it's particularly to begin with, but, but very planned and deliberate. You want to make space for the young person to, to say their own things, whatever they are. Um, so that, that's the voice of the young person coming forward. And you haven't yet done anything about, oh, is this young person competent to make their own decisions? You want to hear from them regardless. Yeah. 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 So that's yeah. your first point, hear from them um, in their own space. Then the question of privacy, I guess, comes up when you think about what might that young person say to you and what then might you consider passing on to their parents? What agreement do you come to with a young person about what can be passed on or not? Because by carving out space for their voice, you, you have to consider whether this is a private space Yeah, so then or I not. do script that time alone with the young person that this is time alone. Um, I don't have to tell anything. I won't tell anything to your parents that you tell me unless for – Less you agree, or less there's a um, I'm concerned about safety of some yourself or someone else. So those expect those um, caveats are clear from the start. And Mick, have you said that to the parents as well in speaking I to usually, your son or daughter? Yeah, I often do. Be, I often do at the start, but sometimes I don't. Um, yeah, so I try to. I suppose it's best practice. I should, and I usually do. Yep. Yeah, I usually do. Yeah. Yep. And what's your experience then when you have the young person alone and you've said that? It, it, do they, does that seem to affect what happens next? Do you think they really take it in and process, okay, what am I going to say? What am I not going to say? Yes, I get some people say, sure, you're not going to tell my parents this. But having said that, I mean, I am a bit older than a young person and working in another space, the Aboriginal Health Service, where I work two days a week, where if I have a health worker in, um, they may get a different story. If I leave the room for anything, let the young person speak to the health worker, they say, oh, I've got this, 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 this. So they, they will get a completely different story from me. So it's it's really, I don't at all pretend I'm going to get the whole story mm-hmm. from the young person just mm-hmm. because they're by themselves. Mm-hmm. And you always have to be aware of that. So in terms of understanding their capacity to make decisions, I think you're saying they have a well-developed, typically have a well-developed capacity to make decisions about who they're going to speak to about what, oh, yeah, in what yeah, way. Yeah, well, well innate. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so, Mick, I think what you've described nicely is bringing the opportunity, the space to hear the voice and bringing the voice forward. And I think when we look at things like the United Nations uh, CRC rights of the child and, you know, hearing the child's voice about matters that are important to them is considered a right. But I think with deciding with children, we want to go, start to go a bit beyond that then. We want to actually think about the deciding and, and the children. And so that has some extent to do with capacity as a child, something about the decision that's to be made. So how do you weigh that up? Oh, look, at the that's very nuanced. It often depends on the complexity of the decision to make. Because I think young people can make lots of decisions about uh, do they cross the road safely or not. And at that level, they, they make lots of decisions every day. You know, shall I buy this chocolate bar or not? But kids are making decisions all the time. Um, and I think we respect that. So back to healthcare, there's layers of simple decisions for the kid in the hospital. Do you want oral or IV? Do you want... No, do you want the TV on or off? Do you want to sleep there? Um, and you know, for big, big decisions, obviously, like 
transplant or leukemia care, that's very complex and nuanced. And you'd never expect a kid to get there on the first day. But for simple decisions like, do you want to take your medicine once a day or three times a day? Um, ideally, it could be three times a day but or four times a day. That's not going to happen. So can we negotiate that? How do we empower that young person? What's going to work for you? What, what's feasible for you? And um, so those less critical decisions, which may not be perfect care, but they're more perfect than not taking medicine at all because it's too hard because it's four times a day, are, are really important decisions to negotiate. Um, so often we're giving pres- prescribing medications, which may be hard to adhere to. Um, often we're giving dietary advice or exercise advice, which, you know, walk around the block, but no, I get Google Maps out and say, where will you go? Oh, is the park here? Have you got a dog? So, yeah, it's actually... A, not just telling them, but actually enabling them to carry out the, um, the the treatment or the advice you've given, and so it's yeah yeah. So often the kid will make the decision to walk or to exercise or to diet. That's the decision, but actually whether they enact on that when they leave is a different layer. So it's just more than just a decision making. It's actually empowering them to follow through with your medical advice. So Mick, you're talking about preferences uh, within the decision matrix. Linda, are they decisions? I mean, are, they ju- are preferences just something else? So preferences are part of, or preferences, the things you care about, the things that you want, are part of what goes into making a decision. But there's also that cognitive component of, okay, I can see that I could do this or I could do this and now my job is to think about how those options connect up with what I really want. Um but then as Mick says, the next step of actually carrying that decision <laughs> out decision. is another step. And I guess um, part of decision-making complexity is building into your decision-making your awareness of your own capacity to carry out mm-hmm. your decision. So in that sense, even simple decisions get quite complicated when you have to factor in your known personal weaknesses or foibles, I guess. So, so there's quite a lot of self-awareness that goes on in decision-making. And, and Mick, do you think that... Are you doing this consciously to build capacity in in the kid, knowing that bigger oh. decisions might be coming or knowing that, I mean, there are always going to be bigger decisions yeah. coming, maybe not just now, but maybe as an adult. I don't know if it's conscious, but I certainly try and build autonomy. So, um, so if there's a young person who's not, want conflict, not taking the insulin, um, I want to do it myself. But they, they've got a history of not doing it themselves. Or, they, or I want well, if if you can't do it yourself, can we negotiate that mum or dad reminds you, or mum and dad does it? Because we do have to recognise that the most you know, in that transition between childhood and adulthood, the most protective factor is a supportive family engagement with school engagement with peers. But we we just always have to have that fallback if they can't do it themselves for whatever reason, they're forgotten, they're disorganised, they refuse, it could be anywhere on that scale, that there is a backup. It's like if you don't put your seatbelt on, who reminds you? Uh, So yes, try and empower the young person to do it, but um, gradually go from that transition of sitting in the back seat where everyone drives you around to getting out of place, but with supervision and then getting autonomy. And I think if we don't build in that, if we skip that step of um, having parents doing everything, so that this, the step from going from parents doing everything to the net, to the kid doing everything and the parents doing nothing, it's it's not very it's usually not successful. You need that um, transition through the L plates. And so, Mick, what about the kid who wants to avoid 
making a decision or seems to be a bit silenced. We've sometimes seen our ethics response group meetings where the kid said something and then turned to the parents and said, was that all right if I said the wrong thing? Yeah. Is, is that, a, I mean, a practical concern? Uh, I think in that, John, you're saying who knows what the right decision is? Are you, are you determining as the doctor sometimes what the right decision is? Sometimes it's who's the right decision or sometimes we're concerned that the kid is being silenced or afraid to decide for themselves because the parenting style yeah. relationship so that the parents make the decisions and therefore they want to make a decision in line with their family. Yeah. So look, it gets a little bit less comfortable as the kid gets older and I think they should be making those decisions or they have the capacity themselves. 12, 13 year old, you know, we, if it's not a massively important decision, chip away next time, try and let the parents. It's also not just about empowering the child, it's about empowering the parent to let go a little bit and take a bit of a risk, like let your kid out in the pee place without the parent being in the front seat. That terrified me the first time my daughter went out in the car by herself. And it's going to terrify parents to let them go on camp or let them go away, have a sleepover and do their own insulin, for, for example. It's going to terrify them. But it, it's um, So we don't want the kids staying home. So it is a little bit, not just supporting the kid, but supporting the parents because it, it is really terrifying for many parents who've had chronic long-term illnesses that have been it's drummed into them by the doctor, the complications of diabetes, are your child's foot falling off if they don't. So they're often coming for a position well, for the for the best interest of the child. But it's not, it's not at some stage a kid's going to move out of the house and have to drive the car themselves. And if they haven't had that experience of doing it, it's going to crash. But Nick, yeah. uh, Nick, that's a really interesting position, but you're starting to think back about the parents because... You know, where are the parents in this? Because the parents have a duty towards the best interests of the child, which might include them emerging autonomy and decision making, but the parents then are responsible for the outcomes when, when they go badly, and yet we may not be including them either out of privacy or out of letting them make a bad mistake. Lynn, where, where do you see the role of the parents? And so I hear Mick sighing over there in the background. responsible always? I think that... Responsibility shifts a little bit, or well, it should shift. It should shift a little bit towards independence, and the young person should be taking some responsibility. We we tell it, we make our kids responsible for little decisions from the age of two or three. If they chuck the Lego across the room, it goes away and it's packed up. So they have to be responsible for their young actions. We we want some responsibility of the young person. We can't get away from that. And if you're not giving your kid responsibility for their actions from a young age, you're not. I don't think you. Providing the most positive parenting. So it's, it's a yeah. really interesting question about the ethics of parenting, isn't it? So we typically frame our discussions around the ethics of doctoring or the ethics of being a health professional. This is partly a question about ethics of parenting. So what counts as good parenting? And I, one way of thinking about it, I think, which brings the two domains together is to think about the interests of the child. And so standard understandings of the interests of a child say, yes, they have an interest in being healthy and well and staying alive and staying safe and having their basic needs met. And particularly when they're very young, that's all in the uh, the, the court of parents. The child also has an interest in developing a sense of self and developing the capacity to make their own decisions and to become an independent adult. So I think when we think about parental responsibility, parents have responsibility for both of those things and they can be a juggle. 
and so the, the uh, you know the the difficulty for parents of um, allowing the their child with diabetes to have a sleepover and taking that risk. That's uh, a juggle that parents have to make. Uh, are letting your child walk to school when you think it might be risky, but you think also it's better for their health and also it helps them to become independent. So there's lots of those juggles that parents have in terms of the ethics of parenting. I do wonder sometimes whether the more we could make that explicit to parents, look, we see that you're juggling these things because parenting is actually a big ethical responsibility and you do have to juggle competing considerations and look, you've been doing it all along and here it is again in relation to decision-making about healthcare. Um, I think respects gives respect to the parent for their role I, I do try and, and their sense that. of responsibility. I do try and avert that. I was saying, yeah. you know, I would be worried if you weren't worried. Yeah. But yeah. don't let your worry be so much that you're not letting your kid develop. So yeah. you acknowledge the worry and it's normal to worry. And yeah. Well, I, it's in fact good to worry. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. To, and I say that, yeah. I, I get that a lot for kids with eating disorders being discharged. I'm really worried about taking them home. Great. It shows you're thinking ahead. Good. I'd be worried if you weren't worried. Um what are we going to do about it? You know, I think this is also a bit different because we do want parents to take control. But acknowledge the worry, acknowledge it's normal to worry, acknowledge it's great to worry and what are we going to do about it? But don't let that worry stifle that kid's development and autonomy. So I think, Lynn, we do, I mean, we do have an out or parents have an out, um, which is the harm principle that comes back in various guises. If, if what the child is choosing to do or being you know, allowed to do, demanding to do is, is going to be harmful the long-term interest, recognising as always that harm can be contested, then that's our bottom line and that that needs some, some changes to what's going on. Now, Mick, why don't we road test some of these ideas? So, <laughs> I don't see how I fail. <laughs> well, I don't think this is ethics. It's not a yeah. pass or fail. <laughs> okay. So here's a 15-year-old girl, Jasmine, and she comes to see you with painful and heavy menstruation. Yep. And... You then consult with her and in that will be some options. Yep. And I know what some of those are and you can explain. But I think there'll be some tensions perhaps from her parents about some of those options. Yeah, so firstly, acknowledge I'm male. It could be um, awkward to talk about it, but um, that's what you're here for and that's usually okay. Um, again, set up that you'll have time to speak by yourself and that's sometimes culturally a bit difficult for some cultures for a male to speak to a young ethnic, depending on ethnicity and religious person about their periods and sometimes we can't go there at all. Um, sometimes there's iron deficiency as well, which is often part of the reason they've come and also we want to get some gauge of how impactful this problem is. Are they missing school? Are they missing parties? Are they scared to go to play sport? And things like that. So you get some gauge of the... Um, impact of the problem on that young person's life, which then sort of helps me say, well, how seriously or how hard I want to push the issue in treatment if it wasn't, if they weren't missing school and it wasn't impacting on their life. There's a bit more flexibility in, in treatment options. So basically the treatment options are replacing the iron if it's, if iron's low. And that's, that's a pretty easy decision to make that. In terms of controlling the periods, there's hormonal and non-hormonal, hormonal and non-hormonal treatments, and and that's often where some tension lies. So the hormonal, so the non-hormonal treatments will be non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or tranexamic acid, and that's usually to reduce the amount of bleeding. But they don't stop your period, and you still have your period. You can use treat hormonal treatment to stop you having a period altogether. Um, 
oral contraceptive pill, skipping the um, sugar tablets, or just going on the oral contraceptive pill, even taking the sugar tablets and having a period every month will reduce your bleeding by about 50%. And it's quite effective and, and they're less painful. So those are the broad options. And the the ethical issue, not ethical, is it ethical? The issue I often come into is some parents or um, are thinking, well, if you put my young daughter on the oral contraceptive pill, which is also contraceptive, not just for menstrual control, that, that may, they may be more likely to have sex without them knowing. So what do I do? Well, I think my first job is, like I said, get the idea of the impact, but my, my job is to give parents and the young person um, information and options. And then, um, so I always if, um, get up the RCH, Royal Children's Hospital, clinical practice guidelines, men are age it. So it's there in front of them. It's got the logo on it. So it must be cred. It's got some cred and it's got hormonal options, non-hormonal options. So it, basically endorses the treatment, not just from me, but from the hospital. And there's also a fantastic um, sheet on how to skip periods, um, which has got the RCH logo on it. So I'm giving them information, not just opinion. Um, I, before, so I do that with, I, I do that with the young person by themselves as well. It is also important for me to know if the young person is actually sexually active because that may push me a bit more to recommending the oral contraceptive pill or pushing that a bit harder. And often, you know, know, the average age of sexual debut in Victoria is 16. So kids have had their first sexual encounter by the age of 16 on average. A lot of kids by VC, they don't. So, you know, by 13, 14, I'm actually asking about um, sexual activity because if it, if they are sexually active, it will be an opportunity to address that problem at the same time. So I get age, sexual activity, give them information, see what the young person's preference is. If she really wants to go on the pill because she's sexually active as well, then um, I'll ask her how that go down with the family. Some very religious families, oh, no, I can't have a boyfriend until I'm married. Um, I I I get that. I get that a lot. Not not as well as being married, Lynn. (laughs) That's what I was worrying about. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so look, yeah, so there's lots of considerations, but it's really important to know the young person's preference in this. I can't make the decision for the family. Like I said, you know, sometimes it's awkward. The young person says, I want to go on the pill, but I don't want my family to know. So I'll give them, well, if you're 15, you can have your Medicare card legally, but you can go and get your Medicare card yourself and go to another GP so it's not on your parents' record. Um, there's drop-in centres, like, uh, action centre in the city or young people's health service. So if they want to go on the pill, but it's going to be the young person's impression that it will be difficult with the family, um, then I'll, I'll talk options with them to get, to get that. And, and practically, Mick, does it work out that the kids tend to make the decision and it's easy, you just don't say much to mum and dad or parents come in and say, well, exactly what are you doing? Oh, it varies a lot. Some mums go, yeah, I went on the pill, it was great. <laughs> yeah, stopped my periods altogether, you know, it was great. I got, I did, when I went on camp, I didn't have my period. Yeah, fantastic. Some mums will just be silent. It's usually the mums um, who bring the kids in anyway. Um, so it varies. I don't think there is a usual. I think it varies a lot, and you have to gauge each situation as it as it is. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of privacy, we know that if parents try and look up in a Medicare card involvement, um, if the kid's the patient, um, you, you won't see anything. 
that, that's happened, um, even if they're on your card. Yeah. And at the hospital, if the parents want to access the portal from 14 and beyond the parents, the child needs to ask the parents' consent to actually be included yeah. in that. So I think that can be, you know, that's a way that we are at RCH maintaining uh, privacy. Lynn, um, how does this sit with you as an ethicist? I know you're a mother, but that's, you're here as an ethicist. Yeah, well, actually, it's hard to take hats off. So I think both are lurking in there. So Mick, I've got a couple of other questions yeah. I'd like to ask you then. So you've described a scenario in which there are uh, op- three options, or at least two. So you can, so three, you can yeah, just you replace deal with, the iron. Yep. We do that. That's done. And then to control the periods, yep. non-hormonal or hormonal. Yep. Okay. So I'm wondering whether, so you put those options to this, to the 15 year old Jasmine. Print it off. Yep. By herself. And you you find out what her preferences are. So uh, I'm wondering what, how it plays out if her preference doesn't align with what you would think was in her best interest. So you've said if she's sexually active, that makes you more liable to recommend the pill, but yep. she might say to you, look, yeah, I agree with you, but I'm not going to do that because my parents will find out yep. uh, and I'm just not going to do it. So I'd prefer to uh, use the, yeah, the one of the other yeah. options. So, we, we're, so we're treating the heavy bleeding, but we're not providing contraception. Yeah. So then we discuss so do you contraception see that options it... like condoms morning after pill. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so you would see that as being fine. Oh, it, it's, not, it's, it's in not, her place. It's her place gonna, to yeah, decide. Yeah, I think if she's telling me she's not going to take the pill, she's not going to take the pill. Yep. So I need to look at the harm minimisation, I suppose, the, sure. next, the next safest way yep. to prevent pregnancy. Yep. If, if she wants to prevent pregnancy, well, it gets difficult if she wants to get pregnant. <laughs> so that's extremely unusual. Um, uh, but yeah, but what's the next best way to prevent pregnancy? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so then maybe if I flip it the other way around... Medically speaking, is it important to replace, to fix up the the iron? And what if you had a young person who said, I don't want to take iron tablets. They're horrible. I've had them. Maybe yeah, I've okay. had them before. I've heard from other people. So there's degrees of iron deficiency. There's iron deficiency makes you a bit tired. There's iron deficiency where you're anemic. Um, and then there may be some medical interventions. If, um, if they're anemic and not wanting to take the Okay, first thing, don't want to take tablets while they make you feel yuck. Well, can you take them every second day? So try, try and to find negotiate. A, yeah, yep. yeah, negotiate, find a regime which is yep. suitable because some yep. people, yeah, do get constipated, do get tummy pain. Yep. Take it every second day. Um, if that's not working, they can't do it. Occasionally, we've, uh, now that iron transfusions are a lot easier to get, we can just replace the iron with a transfusion, yeah, which is done over in 20 minutes, but it's not preferred. Right, okay. So that might be but another option. It still doesn't option. prevent the cause of the iron deficiency. Right, yep. yeah. So what I'm looking for, John, I guess is, what do we see as, well, what does Mick see as lying in the, what you've suggested before we might call the adolescent zone of discretion? What range of decisions is it okay for the adolescent to make for themselves, even if they're in some sense medically suboptimal? But the added, I guess, complication here is then when you have the parents back in the room and they ask, well, so we've brought along Jasmine for this problem, what are you going okay. to do about it? Yeah what would you say okay. to them so, and to what extent do yeah. they get a okay. say in the decision? So there, there are some times when I've prescribed the pill but don't tell my parents. Yep. Done that. Yep. Because I've, she's um, competent, she knows 
I've gone through the I've assessed her as being confident and it's in her best interest. Yep. And so then when you have the parents back in the room and parents say, well, well so Mick, what are you doing about sorry, Dr. Okay. Mick, yeah. whatever they say, <laughs> no, whatever yeah. they call you, no, yeah. uh, what are you doing about this? What about to the outright question, are you prescribe are you gonna prescribe her the pill? Oh, I don't think I've ever had that, but I'll have to say I could, yeah, if I say I can't tell you, I've given it away, haven't I? Yeah. Mm, so <laughs> yes. what would you do? Um I'd probably say I'd probably say no, because I have to. The, 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 the young girl is my patient. She has told me to say no, so I'm on her instruction. It's like the lawyers, I, even though they know the criminal's wrong. I'm acting on the criminal's instructions. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, in this case, the criminal's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the young patient's not wrong. So that's <laughs> the. I, I guess yeah. that tells us the extent to which you're feeling the ethical obligation to maintain her privacy and yep. to allow her to make the decision and that she wants care. to make. give her best self-care, yeah. Yep. yeah. There's a lot in this, Lynn, isn't there? Because as I'm, I'm thinking about decisions with adolescents, then there's a model that would be a sort of share, three-way shared decision-making mm. model. The girl, her parents and you negotiate what's you know, good health care mm. and sort of agreement model. Um, there's another way that, and it comes up with contraceptive pill, and we've talked about Gillick before, where it's a good decision to be on the pill because you're uh, sexually active. Mm. And the doctor agrees with that and the patient agrees with that, the young patient, the parents don't. Mm. And so they don't really, as Mick's described, need the parents' consent uh, to do that. And in fact, I think Mick, I'm going to think of you as good, sneaky Mick, um, that they've got a, a way of finding this information from our intranet or our internet and seeing their GP, so you don't necessarily have to do that if it all gets very awkward in the room. And there's another sort of decision, which is, well, all of these decisions are quite good. So it doesn't matter which ones you, you choose, and that's another, you know, another model. And, and then we hinted at the last when perhaps a kid is choosing something that's not in their best interests and they're making a bad mm-hmm. you know, decision. Now, here we've set up the parents in some sort of our traditional model as not wanting the pill, but in fact, the parents may want the pill, the girl doesn't, yes, and they're sexually active. Um, and so there's sort of another layer, and, and we do have uh, examples where kids are making bad decisions for themselves. We've highlighted where parents are responsible for what happens to the kids' health care and, mm. and, and outcomes there. So there's a lot of layers here mm. about, about decision-making. Okay, this is a young woman who is sexually active but doesn't want to go on the pill yeah. for some reason. It's We shouldn't discount the idea that the parents might actually prefer that she's on yes. the pill. I would prefer that. Yes, yes. Um, but if I don't get to know that's what you've been talking about, I'll never find out about it and I don't get to support the decision, yeah. which yeah, yeah, yeah. is the decision yeah. you'd want to talk about. Yeah. So if she is sexually active and doesn't want to go on the pill and is not interested in using contraception or you don't think she's going to follow through yeah. with it. Is there any role for involving the parents protectively? Okay, okay so first, yeah, I think good, bad's dichotomous. It's, it's, we often, p- people make bad decisions, but you look at harm reduction. So it's the pill morning after, so give them explanations about that. Mm. If it's not the best decision and you want the parents to be involved, yeah, um, that's tough because if I... If I've been sworn to sworn to sworn to confidentiality, it is tough. Is I would then have to put my is this a child protection issue? Is the really is the protective issue really that great that I need to breach confidentiality? Because that is one of the caveats of confidentiality. If you're gonna mm. do harm to yourself or others, mm. I will breach confidentiality. And I'm not sure if I'd do that first time till I knew that 
person, but if the risk was immediate, if she was out as a sex worker, for example, yeah, that's a massive risk. That's a that's a protective issue. So, I do have that protective issue out, but I'd have to be think really carefully when I enforce that issue. Mm. Use that use that card. Use the protective card. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, you're right. There is protective issues there. What what is the trigger to use that protective card to breach confidentiality. Mm. Yeah, and I think that that's that's a really ethical issue. I, 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 hypothetically speaking, I, if it, if I thought it was really risky, I would have to. But I don't. I'd have to. I can't tell you today what that what would trigger that what level that of risk. Yeah. yeah, and I, it, it feels like Mick, as if thinking through the situation that we've been discussing about the contraceptive pill, given that if she's sexually active but doesn't want to use a contraceptive pill, there are other ways of managing the risk of pregnancy like morning after pill yeah. using yep. condoms yep. and yep. so on. I, I think I'm hearing you're saying that risk would not be enough, the risk that she might get pregnant would not be enough for you to say, I'm going to breach your confidentiality and involve your parents I'd have to get, I'd, yeah, I'd have to gauge case by case, yeah. Mm. Depending if it was casual sex once a week when she's drunk or every night because she's living with a boyfriend. Um, I, 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 yeah, I'll have yeah. to gauge that risk yeah. in reality. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's a complex one then, isn't it? Because being pregnant is, is not necessarily a bad, you know, a, a bad thing and, and you know, or it's is, an is interesting it the third party risk, who's, isn't the, it? who's the baby? So how do we think yep. about yeah. that? Yeah, and, and, and pregnancy is really tricky because there's this thing about unplanned pregnancy versus unwanted pregnancy. And I think we often use unwanted instead of unplanned or other way around. And mm. they're unplanned, but they are wanted. So it is very nuanced, mm. very nuanced. Yeah. And I guess so there are other situations are potentially more straightforward, Mick, where the risk is actually to the young person themselves of some medical event happening that really results in harm directly to them. Yeah. And, and look, there's a lot of, this is getting very medical, there's a lot of medical conditions where pregnancy pushes the risk higher on mm. DVTs um, if they're on anti-epileptics, the risk of teratogenicity to the fetus. So, yeah, yeah there, it's it's, yeah, it's a very – there are some conditions where pregnancy is life-threatening. Right. Um, and that's, that's, so, that so changes that the would, risk. That yes. changes the risk. So, Lynn, I think we've, we've, we've yeah. actually we're, we're doing well. We navigated our way through the maze of decision-making with uh, adolescents and then we've sort of gone out the far end and walked into another one, a whole new one. And perhaps that's going to be a podcast for later. And, and then, of course, we've had those issues when the child or adolescent has developmental delay and cognitive impairment. It all gets very, very complicated. Mm. But I think we've really worked Mick very hard today. And I think what I've learned is that there are stages of development that are based in biology that allow emerging capacity and then increasingly stable decision-making abilities and, and, and reflective abilities, that it's not perhaps as hard in practice as we might be thinking about in that for most instances, it's a matter of giving space to the child. I think mm. your expression of that is a very good one to understand them, to assess their preferences. And those preferences might translate into something that I'm going to call a decision, even if others might call it small, but hopefully amongst that, we're, you know, we're getting values uh, coming through. And there is a role for parents, a role for parents to let go, but a role for them to be involved uh, with with decision making, and then you know the very important aspect of of privacy. So you know, we often think about age and capacity in decision making, but in adolescence, privacy is another dimension 
that's really important. And I think we've had a really good think about that. So Mick, thank you very much for helping us think about deciding with adolescents. And Lynn, thank you very much for injecting some really solid ethics into our chat today. So thank you for joining us for another fantastic podcast at Essential Ethics. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a rating and share it with your colleagues and friends. Essential Ethics was brought to you by the generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was produced by Dr Georgina Hall and recorded in the studios of the Royal Children's Hospital Creative Services. Please join us for our annual bioethics conference held in September each year. And if you'd like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, visit us on our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics. Be inspired. Thank you.